Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And in the Alpine region of northeast Victoria, a more and regular intense fire is putting the snow gum under stress. And while the impacts of climate on the Alpine areas go beyond dieback in snow gum woodlands and other sensitive species are also being impacted, it's these iconic and ecologically important trees that scientists are increasingly seeing as a signifier of ecosystem health, a bit like uh, bleached coral in coral reefs. Uh, a significant new report compiled by Cam Walker at Friends of the Earth, who's a volunteer firefighter. Um, he's a mountain lover and a regular voice on this uh, program on 3RRR. Um, uh, the report makes a series of recommendations for how we can better protect our alpine ecosystems. And it's great to have you with us, Cam. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, yeah, we know that many eucalypts can withstand fire, but your report, it's called an icon at risk, says that more than 90% of our snow gum woodlands burnt in the past 20 years. I'm guessing that this is more frequent than, than they would normally experience. Yeah, absolutely it is. So snow gums, like a lot of eucalypt woodlands and forests, they're fire adapted and they're fire tolerant. So they don't mind a fire coming through, but generally that would happen, you know, under normal scenarios every 50 years or every 70 years. And as the forests get older, they become less flammable. So as they move towards a, a, a lower understory and, and higher trees. But um, since about the year 2000, the well, since the millennial drought, actually, what's happened is that we're getting fires more frequently. So of that 90% that's been burnt in the last 20 years, some of it's been burnt once or twice or three times or four times. And what's happening is we're finding already little localised spots where the snow gums have basically disappeared, where, you know, after a fire, they've re-sprouted or they've thrown seed and you get a new forest that's starting to form and then the, another fire comes through and knocks it off. And so these small areas are kind of becoming little biodiversity deserts where there's just some grass and some shrubs but actually no trees. And that was one of the key reasons we produced this report was just to kind of get land managers to think about where we're potentially going in terms of this iconic species. And what are the broader consequences for, for the ecosystem from those changes and, and a reduced population, I suppose, of, of snow gums, Cam? Well, you have a whole range of animals, of course, that um, are adapted to living in those woodlands. It's really the only place, apart from the true alpine zone, where you get snow in winter in Australia. So it's utterly unique on a global scale, um, you know, the, the combination of animals that you get in the woodlands. The woodlands, of course, these are the headwaters of all our river systems or the majority of our river systems. And I think something like 40% of all the water that goes into the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, and as the woodlands are lost, that impacts on the snowpack and how that's, that melts and then is released. So there's a whole kind of, you know, series of knock-on events, I guess you would say, um, as the woodland declines, both ecological um, impacts but also economic impacts, and that's related to the fire. Um, so everyone remembers the 2019-20 fires when basically all the high country was closed off to tourism and, you know, that cost 
tens of millions of dollars to businesses up there in the valley towns and up in the mountains. So there is an economic cost um, that is associated with this increased fire risk. You know, when I was reading through your report, Cam, I was thinking, look, you really are well placed to, to do this study because... Uh, you, you spend a lot of time in the mountains. You are a volunteer firefighter these days, and uh, I guess you you have noticed firsthand, have you, the, the changes up there in the in the past couple of decades. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone that, you know, has ever gone skiing at Mount Bullor or Falls Creek or wherever, or if they like going walking in the mountains, you've seen it, you know. And if you think back to when you were a kid, did you see these endless expanses of dead trees? It's not just about the snow gums. It's also the alpine ash lower down. And there's a really important government program that was um, seeking to help the alpine ash uh, recover um, basically after the 2013 fires that happened up in northeast Victoria. And they're collecting seed and aerially reseeding. And that's a really good program. But it's also terrifying to think that we have to intervene on this level because of climate-driven fires. We've, you know, one of our most iconic trees, the alpine ash, which is um, kind of very similar in look to the mountain ash, but exists further up the mountains and generally to the east of the, uh, of the mountain ash, we're, ha- we're having to intervene to make sure they don't, in the real world, face ecological collapse. That's also happening with the snow gums, and it's become more apparent that more of the forests are dead. You know, there is no... There, you just can't argue against that. Any, you know, kind of impartial observer would see that. And then on top of this fire issue, we also have the issue of um, dieback of the snow gums, and this is something that's caused... It's a natural process there's a beetle that gets under the bark of the trees and and can stress them and kill them over time. But it would appear there's a link to climate change. The winters aren't as cold, more of the beetles survive, the impacts are greater because the trees are stressed by drier summers. And so you've got this kind of overlying kind of template of increased fire regime, which is pushing the snow gums towards ecological collapse. And then you've got the dieback underneath caused by the beetles, which is natural, we're being supercharged by climate change. And another important aspect of our report is that dieback is really becoming prominent in Victoria. Previously it was an issue in the Snowy Mountains but it's very clear now it's come over the border and it's starting to impact all the higher mountains. Reading your report it was it was really interesting to to learn or, or have it all in one place I suppose that positive changes that have happened in the Victorian high country um, over the years obviously since colonisation there's been a, a range of threats from you know mining and, and cattle grazing um, and uh, you know sort of broader uh, challenges and, and impositions I suppose on the environment um, as a result of increased populations and, and land clearing um, following that. But there has been progress and, and there's things like the, you know, the Alpine National Park that um, has served to greater protect those regions. Does that sort of give you some hope that, that there may be a chance to, uh, I, I suppose, prevent some of the worst extent of, of the, the dying off of snow gums and, and other trees and vegetation in the Victorian Alps? Yes, it does. And I'm always heartened by the fact that if you think about, you know, much of the Alps are now protected in the Alpine National Park and Borbore and Buffalo and so on. And they only happen because people got organised. So pretty much all the good things that ever happen in society are a result of campaigning by, you know, average folks like us who get together, who decide to, you know, put the shoulder to the wheel on a specific issue. So activism works. And I guess the reason we wrote this report now was because we've since those those parks were created and there were huge campaigns in the 1960s and 70s and 80s 
and that created a chain of national parks. Since that time, climate change has, has, you know, kind of come out of the fringes of the public debate into the mainstream and the impacts of climate change are being felt now. So it's great we've got these protected areas. It's great they were created because of community concern and community mobilisation. And now we just have to adapt how we manage these forests now. And we do note and we do acknowledge the Victorian government has increased funding uh, to the park system, which is really good, and they've increased funding to firefighting. But the nine recommendations in here are primarily around increasing our capacity to fight fires, but also assessing to see whether we do need to intervene um, at a landscape level to protect the snow gums in the way we have needed to do with Alpine ash. Yeah, and I mean, look, that's a really good introduction, really, to, to talking about some of those recommendations. We're speaking with Cam Walker, his campaign's coordinator over at Friends of the Earth, and, and he's pulled together a report called An Icon at Risk, Current and Emerging Threats to the Victorian High Country. And uh, it's really quite an extensive study if you want to look it up and, and read it. Um, but some of those recommendations, Cam, uh, I mean, look, often we, we let fires burn, don't we, in, in the high country once it gets into those remote areas it just, we, we seem to just let it burn, but but this report um, you're recommending that we have more remote area firefighters what, what difference would that make? How would that change the way we do things now? That's really important because um, fires in remote areas tend to happen through lightning strikes and often they're remote areas you can't drive to them so you need special skills it's a, it's a more dangerous form of firefighting than working off a truck um, but it requires certain skills we do have teams who are dropped in by helicopter to put out these fires when they start and they're very effective I think in that 2019-20 season they put out where they were put on a fire they put out 80% of them pretty much straight away so we just need to adapt how we fight fires and we need to focus more and more on early intervention, stop them before they get going because as we know when it's super dry, when it's super hot, when we've got strong winds you basically can't fight them in these remote areas and you do have to kind of let them run um, and so yes it's about early strike capacity. Our state firefighters are great at doing this, we just need more money so we can have more of them. And what about in terms of logging, Cam? The Victorian government announced in 2019 that native forest logging would be phased out by 2030 and logging of old growth forests to stop immediately. What impact is that having on the, the threats and challenges faced by snow gums and I suppose what should happen in order to protect them for the years ahead? So um, we don't log the snow gums, thankfully, um, although there was an incident uh, where there was plans to put a logging road through a snow gum woodland uh, near the Dago High Plains, which was quite disturbing. But salvage logging is a real issue, and salvage logging, which is when you, you log a fire after it's been burnt, is the worst kind of logging you can do in terms of ecological impacts. And we still have this ongoing argument about what constitutes an old-growth tree, and a tree that ecologically is old-growth growth often doesn't meet the criteria that is used by the state logging authority and so that's a constant kind of argument that goes in circles so salvage logging and logging of unburnt forests which are now even more important given the massive fires of 2019-20 is an issue um 
in the foothill forests and in some of the higher alpine ash forests of the Victorian high country. No doubt about that. And, um, you know, there's really strong campaigns around the state to say, look, let's just get on with this. We've got a commitment to uh, phase out all logging by the end of the decade, but we just need to speed it up because we've lost so much resource and we just need to get on with a, a just and a fair transition for people currently working in the industry. And a lot of that, those jobs will be in land management and fire prevention and firefighting. So there will still be, you know, same sector jobs there, but we need to plan for that now. We need a plan as we as we need for the energy sector and as, as they needed for the automotive sector as it was phased out in, in Australia. So we just need to get on with enacting that plan. And I mean, it really sounds like you're talking about sort of adaptation on, on one level, but also mitigation. And you mentioned in the report that the Victorian government has increased the targets, emission reductions targets uh, here in Victoria of what we're aiming for in, by 2025 and also by 2030. Um, this report uh, says that we need to, to go further with regards to emissions reductions. Are you thinking that's in any way likely, Cam? Uh, look, um, we've got the, the targets that have been committed to, but there will be reviews in coming years, and it's clear we all need to do, do more. Victoria, like other states and territories, has really stepped up because of the failure of the federal government, who have absolutely and utterly failed the Australian people on climate change. And I don't say that, you know, with any joy in my heart. It's just disappointing to see how comprehensively they've failed us. And that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that's due out tonight, our time, uh, there's already been bits of that that have been one of the key things I heard this morning was that we're going to hit this crucial tipping point of 1.5 degrees Celsius overall warming earlier than had previously been anticipated. We need all hands on deck with this. We need all governments on deck with this. We need to do more. We need to move faster. That's the core message of the IPCC. So Victoria has to do more, but the federal government are pretty much missing in action at present, and they really need to step up on climate change. Do you expect that there will be momentum coming from that uh, sixth IPCC report, Cam? I think there has to be, because we know IPCC is inherently conservative because of the peer review process and because often they kind of close the books on data and then spend several years reviewing it. So it's always not as bad as the reality of what's going on with climate change. So, you know, if, if it's saying things are very grim um, and it's really interesting that computer, like the, the climate modelling keeps getting better and then when we look back at what we thought would happen and then what happened, we're seeing this alignment that's quite phenomenal. And in this current report, there will be data on the 2019-20 fires and how they were influenced by climate change. Like, we can just see what is happening. We can see we're passing tipping points. You know, there's huge fires in Siberia and Alaska and Turkey and Greece. Like, we are just witnessing, uh, like, a speeding up of climate disasters. It is clear as day what's going on, and yet we just have these people that are in charge of the country who are just putting the handbrake on, you know, as often as they can and ignoring what's coming up in front of us. So it's where there has to be a shift. There is a shift in community sentiment. There's certainly a shift in business, which is is rapidly, you know, and and very welcome uh, in its investment in renewables and storage and so on. The government at some point has to blink and catch up with the rest of us and do something meaningful. 
And um, and just finally, Cam, I mean, we've heard a lot um, last year in particular about sort of climate-linked economic recovery. And look, now we've got this Delta wave, not just here in Australia, but around the world. Um, hopefully, when we're talking economic recovery again, and, and I, I guess we're just in it at the moment, but um, do you, you know, I mean, what's your hopes about the, the link there between economic recovery and climate well, I think we have to see them as being interlinked, and I think many people understand that, that there's no point doing things in our economic recovery that will make things worse for the climate down the track. So that's why it's very disappointing the federal government keeps talking about the idea of a gas-led recovery, because it doesn't create many jobs and it locks us into what they call stranded assets, you know, infrastructure that's not going to be useful in coming years. So it's really essential, it's imperative that state governments and territories and federal governments, if they're going to create policy to drive economic recovery, and certainly if they're going to put taxpayers' money into recovery projects, that it, it, it you know, makes for a greener future, makes for a sustainable future, that it doesn't further lock us into our current reliance on fossil fuels. So, you know, we've got an opportunity right now to influence that, and it's essential that the federal government hears very clearly from all of us, build back green, don't build back, you know, uh, in, in a kind of an old world technology using fossil fuels like gas and coal. Well, um, Cam, hopefully many more people will get up to the high country to experience those amazing ecosystems um, when the, the lockdown comes to an end, this current one. And, um, yeah, in the, in the meantime, enjoy them and hopefully we'll catch you again in a month's time. That would be great. I'll talk to you then. Bye. Okay. Bye. Um, Cam Walker, Cam Haynes, coordinator at Friends of the Earth and the author of a report called An Icon at Risk, Current and Emerging Threats to the Victorian High Country. And you can access that um, on new sites, but you can also accept access it from the Friends of the Earth website. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Uh, last week, we received some welcome news. The federal, state and territory governments have reached a new national agreement on closing the gap, working in partnership with the Coalition of Peaks. Uh, the $1.1 billion national agreement aims to reduce the inequality faced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And what's different this time is that the national agreement has been built around what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people say is important to improve their lives. And uh, the partnership agreement also establishes a joint ministerial and Coalition of Peaks Council on Closing the Gap. And our next guest is an elected member of that joint council. Muriel Bamplett is also CEO of VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency. And Muriel, welcome back to Triple R. It's great to have you there. Yeah, thanks very much for having me back. Uh, and um, so, uh, reporting um, around this announcement last week around the new national agreement emphasised its significance. Um, how would you describe what has been uh, achieved last week um, in the lead up to last week's announcement, Muriel? Well, certainly because, you know, I'm um, chair of SNAC, the National Voice for Children, um, a lot of emphasis and focus on children and the early years. And so I think that's critical, but on health and across the 16 targets. So we were able to negotiate with the government to address some of the really big wicked problems, housing, homelessness, family violence, justice. And so to see um, last week the tabling of, you know, the states and territories individual implementation plan and the progress against the reform poor reform priorities is critical. And so I think um, we can see a massive investment, but also a lot of work um, going forward. We still have many challenges, obviously. 
And uh, I mean, looking from the outside, Muriel, it's really pleasing, I, see, I suppose, to see a whole raft of, of um, initiatives included as part of this package. But, but do you see sort of a real change coming out of the way that Close the Gap has been managed through the coalition of the peaks in recent times in, in how policy is being developed in that area? Is it more sort of consultative and, and, um, and positive, I suppose, in what it can achieve for, for First Nations people in Australia? Look, I, I've been involved in a number of forums already and so we've had a me- meeting with finance within Canberra about looking at how do we actually um, change the way that funding goes to Aboriginal or goes to mainstream for Aboriginal and so preferencing Aboriginal communities and building the capacity of Aboriginal communities. I think too, too much funding goes to um, you know organisations where there's little benefit to Aboriginal and that's not to say there are a lot of organisations that do great things for Aboriginal. So, but I think there's been a do-for approach for Aboriginal. And so what we need to do is build the capacity. We've seen where there's been a greater investment in Aboriginal community control, better outcomes. And so you only have to see what we're doing around Aboriginal guardianship with the numbers of Aboriginal children that are going home. So I think, you know, there has to be... But sitting at the table last week when I looked at all the implementation and the changing language, like when we first sat down with the states and territories, there was a real reluctance, a real, like, how do we do this? Oh, we can't do this, this is too hard. Um, you know, Aboriginal organisations, they don't have capacity, capability. We don't we don't have that level of engagement. But um, when we sat down on Friday, it was a can-do, it was really, um, and there was so much, you know, um, commitment in the room from, you know, ministers, from senior bureaucrats, from, you know, and Ken White has been able to get all of Cabinet to sit around the table with the Aboriginal organisations and talk about what it is that they are going to do that is differently. So significant um, changes, I believe. So what, I mean, what do you attribute that change from it's too hard to we can do this? What what happened there, um, do you think? Look, I think the fact that we have seen the Aboriginal people that are coming up with responses and saying, look, these are examples of if you invest. And so I, I think we've got a you know, sophisticated discussion, really good policy. We're, you know, really negotiating um, how we set you know, do the modelling around how do we change gaps. But we're also talking about, you know, the types of programs, the types of issues, the types of challenges. But, we're, you know, we're not, um, you know, we're really sort of not ignorant of the fact that, you know, we do, do have um, challenges in remote and rural areas and we're not, um, you know, we're sort of really keen to take those on. But to see senior Aboriginal people, like if you think about Vicky O'Donnell from Western Australia, she knows her community and so she's taking it up to the government and saying, we know our community, we know what needs to be done and we want to be sitting at the table when decisions are made. And so we have, you know, Aboriginal people all over this nation knowing what's, what's, what's happening in their community, what needs to be done and taking it up to government and government's listening. And the centrepiece of of this uh, most recent initiative is uh, just over three hundred and seventy eight million dollars in reparations for stolen generations survivors in Commonwealth administered territories. So that's the NT, ACT, and and Jarvis Bay. How significant is that? And and what might be the broader, um, I suppose, ramifications for places like um, you know Queensland and, and WA that don't yet have schemes such as that set up? 
Yeah, look, and I mean, I think it's always been a concern for us that, um, you know, the rollout of reparations or redress doesn't often go far enough. It's, it's time limited. And I think there's always a concern. I mean, the funding that was announced last week is only for four years. Um, it takes, from our experience dealing with stolen genes and, you know, redress, uh, it takes people a long time before they come to the realisation that, you know, they, they can do that. Um, take that journey and so I, I guess the reservation I have is you know the time frame um, I think that but you know cognizant of the fact that even in Queensland Western Australia people can still take civil litigation so obviously a lot of people still choose to do that but I think I think it's a step in the right direction I think you know Northern Territory I sat at the table with many stolen gems from the Northern Territory who wanted redress and, and a lot of people think that it's about money but often it's not about money it's about that it's recognition that what, what happened to them was wrong and you know many people have said that I'll be here when the money's gone but you know I'll be still here hearing the apology about what, what they did to me was wrong and so I think People are really, really critical of the fact that they wanted an apology and acceptance that what, what happened to them was wrong. And I think that's been, for me, the greatest thing. I think some of the, the flaws obviously still are still there. If you um, have a criminal record um, in many states, you can't get reparation or redress. So that, that worries me. I think Victoria's probably got um, the most generous one. I think these is 100,000. I think some of the other states have been a lot less. And so I think um, that, that concerns me. Victoria's offering a funeral uh, to you know, pay assistance with funerals and, you know, counselling. And so I think that's critical to, you know, address the issue of counselling ongoing. So I think um, those things need to be negotiated when we, when we do have a redress. So, I mean, this is, uh, we're speaking with Muriel Bamplett and uh, she uh, is uh, CEO of VACA, a Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. Um, she's also a member of the Joint Ministerial uh, um, Council Coalitions of Peaks Council on Closing the Gap. Um, I think I got that wrong, um, uh, Muriel, but, um, and she's also um, um, part of many other um, groups as well. And But, I mean, what I wanted to ask is around the difference by state and territory. You're saying that seeing the implementation plans on the table last week you know you, you could really see the change there but there is and it sounds like there's differences across the country are we likely with this new national agreement to see the implementation plans become more similar mural or is it really important that they are state by state territory by territory well i think that um you know similar to the national redress it would have been good if we just would have had a national redress or national, you know, um, obviously reparation for stolen gentlemen would have given some consistency. But, uh, you know, and even with the national redress on, you know, institutional sexual abuse, I think you've seen um, people take civil action and... And I think that under stolen gems, we know that it's just really hard. The threshold for meeting the evidence, it's only, I think, ever been one person that's successful, and that was Bruce Travella. So he was the only one that actually successfully um, got funding under the under stolen gems. But I think it's really, I think it's just the fact that there's 
so much inconsistency and such a short period. So in Tasmania, I think it was 30,000, and um, they only had it for a very short period of time. So as I said, I think it's, you know, um, having having offering the scheme for a, time, for a very short period of time means people that make the journey and finally find out where they come from can't get redressed. I'm interested too in in what changes might flow from the the coalition of the Peaks Council and and the kind of engagement, I suppose, with um, the federal and state governments and and territory governments around some of these issues. Because we've spoken on on the show um, sort of in recent times about the the strengthening of bail laws in the Northern Territory and also the you know the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility. And we know that um, there's a you know very strong overrepresentation of First Nations children in detention, particularly in, in the Northern Territory. But there hasn't really been much movement on that um, for the, the current uh, Labor government up there. Do you imagine that, that out of this process that you're involved in, there might be some changes and sort of policy and, and legislative changes that might address some of these issues that might not necessarily on the face of it be explicitly focused on, on First Nations people, but will help to address some of these um, issues that are, that are very much part of the Close the Gap framework? I have to say that's why I think we chose the 16 targets. When, when we first started to begin to negotiate with the Commonwealth Government, they only wanted to focus on prosperity. So we were keen to sort of say, well, you know, yes, we do need to, you know, have jobs and employment and economic opportunities and housing and all by, you know, the purchasing of housing. But we do need to tackle the really big issues. And so um, particularly justice at the moment, there is a greater focus at the, um, through the Coalition of Peaks of establishing a justice committee to work to work across um, with government across the states and territories and at the Commonwealth level. I mean, Obviously, always on the conver- in, in the conversations is the issue of the bail. How, how, how you know how do we get alternatives to um, locking our people up? How do we actually and um, raising the ages? Always, I mean, it's in every justice forum we go to. I'm on the um, Victorian Aboriginal Justice Forum, and, and it's constantly put between before the Attorney General and the ministers, and, and it, it's it's. Constant, and we know we've run campaigns and we're working with all states and territories to address that issue. But at the Commonwealth and the state level, we actually are trying to get consistency of approaches to justice. You know, um, we know in the Northern Territory, you look at the shocking figures for Aboriginal people involved in the justice system, but we can't just take it. We can't just look at justice alone. We have to look at, you know, what are the, what are the, what, what are the steps that lead to, you know, our people ending up in the justice system. There's a correlation between family violence, out-of-home care, homelessness, drug and alcohol, mental health. So we, we need to be able to address all those issues, not just focus on justice alone. And I think it's critical that we have the support services for our people when they come out of prison. So I think it, it's got to be a whole of system. So the the new national agreement on closing the gap mural, as I said at the beginning, is a $1.1 billion um, package that we, we heard announced last week. Um, I also note that, that Pat 
Turner, who was out um, in front of cameras speaking about the agreement uh, last week, said that this is just the beginning with regards to um, addressing inequality and that we will see more funds uh, and that and that's how it will work. Um, are, are you are we then expecting that this agreement will see significant announcements like this sort of annually in the way that we've seen reporting on Close the Gap over the past decade? Look, I, I think you will, but you'll also see it in general now. I think government policy and what we're pushing is, is that in every across all of governments, whatever they're doing, whatever their work, we have to think about how do they actually include, you know, close the gap targets? How do they think about, you know, um, investment in Aboriginal community control? How do they include Aboriginal people in decision around funding, how do they actually look at data and improve local decision making and, and give you know the information to community because many of our communities don't know what are the they don't know how many people that have got mental health, drug and alcohol family violence. And so what we want what we're pushing for is better localised data so that communities can make informed decisions. But uh, as Pat said, we, you know, like at the moment we've got so many eyes in the funnel. We're working across all of the major areas, so education, justice, family violence, health, child protection, early years. All of those areas are working closely. We've got a number of ministers, a number of government departments that are working with Aboriginal. But it's not only at the Commonwealth level, there's obviously the state. Some states are further ahead than others. Victoria's implementation plan was launched last week and so it's you know, um, and it very much points to the fact that we've got a lot of work to do even here in Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of work to do and a lot of work that's, of course, going on and it just boggles the mind every time we speak to you, Muriel, about how, how busy you are and how much um, incredible work you're doing. But I, I want to ask just lastly about how um, VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, is is going at the moment. I think, you know, everyone in their day-to-day lives and in their work is, is finding sort of new workarounds for, for doing um, their day-to-day business. Has sort of your, your modus operandi your, your day-to-day work changed at all? And, and, and I suppose, how are you going providing support given this kind of in and out of lockdown experience we've had in Victoria? Yeah, look, it's a really, um, really great question. I mean, I think, like all of everybody out there, I think we have to go with the ebbs and flows. I mean, we provide essential services to children, high-risk children in resi care. We have, you know, Aboriginal families that are out there doing it tough, and so we offer emergency relief and so and supports. We we still have family violence where we have to keep women safe, and so we have to put in different ways of working with, you know, our women and our children and keeping them safe. And so there's, and there's, you know, some of the triggers around, you know, family violence, around youth suicide. So a lot of those things are things that we're keeping, you know, we've just got to really be mindful of where are our, you know, high-risk families and how do we actually manage them. But, you know, and then you've got your own staff and so keeping your staff morale up. You know, one minute they're sitting at the desk, next thing they're back at home and so um, staff are really sort of, you know, it's very hard for us to keep them motivated but um, they're out in the field, they have to be out in the field and so um, obviously we got a call about the towers on the weekend and concern about, you know, any Aboriginal clients that were in the towers. So we're quite heightened about, you know, where our risk is. Um, we don't just service, obviously, the clients that come to our organisation. We see it as critical to visit any vulnerable elders that we have. And elders are, are 
you know, our carers, our elders look after our children. Elders are a big part of our service system, and so, um, you know, it's we we carry a lot of risk, but um, and we do carry a lot of responsibility for a lot of um, our people, and so I think it's critical that we make sure um, that we support them. I think at the moment we've got a, a big commitment to get as many people across both our organisation and our community vaccinated. So um, we've got a big drive on to get vaccination happening. And we've been really proud, you know, Victorian Aboriginal Health Service and that show, we've seen now 58% of Aboriginal people um, vaccinated, which is one of the highest in the country. So I think um, these are the things that Aboriginal community control organisations, I believe, work well to do is to... We work well together to get make it for our people on the ground. It's been great speaking with you um, this morning, Muriel, and getting all of the, the insights that you can provide to, to us today. Um, thank you so much, and um, we're looking forward to speaking to you again really soon, and all the best with everything. Yeah, thanks. I was really pleased to see here um, that you spoke to my son. My son's Jander Marikad, and so he did the work for Nova Paris, um, so he's an amazing artist, but thank you for having him on the show. Awesome. I bet he did really well. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks right. so much. Talk to you. Yeah, okay. whole family of of um, legends. Absolutely. By the <laughs> Thanks, Muriel. Muriel Bamplett, there, CEO of VACA, and she's also a joint council member of the Coalition of Peaks. And of course, we're going out throughout all of um, Victoria, off Wurundjeri country here at Three Triple R, and um, and also internationally streaming on rrr.org.au. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Every year, around 3,000 Indigenous students from around the country receive scholarships to attend boarding schools. On one level, these can provide important opportunities for a top-level education, but they also come with quite a few challenges, with students separated from family and culture and often placed into a very foreign environment. A new film, screening as part of MIF, follows the journey of a number of students boarding at Australia's most expensive school, Geelong Grammar, in 2020. The film is called Off Country, and to talk all about it, we're joined by directors John Harvey and Rianne Skirving. Welcome to you both. Uh, thanks for having a chat with us today on Triple R. Thanks so much. Good morning. And, Thanks for having me. Good morning. And um, so you, you focused in on Geelong Grammar for this film, but there's, of course, a range of other boarding schools that I suppose operate in a, in a similar way. What led to you focusing on, um, on Geelong Grammar? Sure. Well, we were looking for a boarding school in Victoria, firstly, and also looking for one that had boys and girls because we wanted to capture both stories. Um, And when we looked into Geelong Grammar, it has an incredibly well-established and long-running Indigenous program um, with a lot of kids involved, uh, more so than many other boarding schools. Um, And so we approached them and they were also really open and keen to be a part of the conversation. So that's where it all started. And why did you uh, want to tell the story of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander students leaving leaving country and, and going into that boarding school environment? What did, why did you want to tell that story in the first place? Well, yeah, so, I think... John? Oh, sorry, Brian, you go. Oh, no, go, go. <laughs> for, for us, you know, for young Indigenous people... Um, you know, we, we often talk about them 
and they're often discussed within the media. And um, but we don't often hear from young people directly about their experiences, young Indigenous people. And so I guess you know we're really kind of interested to um, hear their voices and hear their experiences um, that they're having today. And I suppose it's one thing to get the school on board for a documentary such as this one, but quite another thing to get a bunch of teenagers to say yes to, you know, being filmed and and being followed around for a year at school and and at home as well. How did you go about deciding on who you would focus on for this film and and what was the initial response when you said, hey, we want to follow you you around um, with a camera for the next few months? Sure. Well, look, it was a long process um, to get the film up and running. So we met with actually quite a few different cohorts of students over a couple of years. Um, When we decided on the year we wanted to film, we met with all of the students who were involved in the scholarship program and chatted to them about the film and what we wanted to do. Um, And then we let them come to us with whether it was something they might be happy to be a part of. Um, and a lot did, um, and, and some, some didn't, you know, like obviously like any bunch of teenagers, um, there are some who are going to be uh, willing to show to share their lives and, and those that aren't. Um, I think some of the Indigenous students were a little bit used to talking about the, the program that they're on and part of the scholarship, and they're used to being asked about it. I don't think they necessarily understood quite how closely we'd be in their lives and for for how long um and so you know there was uh they enjoyed it at some moments and then got fed up at other times and um it was a constant sort of um uh relationship building experience really um to try and keep them interested in in sharing their stories and sometimes having to let them drift away for a little bit and return to us when they were ready to share again and look, what an extraordinary year to make this film because I, I, I must say when I was first watching it and I heard the introduction to what year it was, which was 2020, I went, oh, I know there's going to be lockdowns. I know there's going to be this really unexpected twist in these in these students' lives as there, as there was in all of our lives last year. Um, I guess with the filming process, that also was something that you could you just couldn't have anticipated. How did that uh, affect your, your, your kind of plan, I guess, and, and travelling back to country with, with students and, and filming them there and all of the things that go into to making a documentary? How did, how did you um, weather that? Yeah, well, look, it was definitely not the year we had planned. Um, it was a very simple idea. We were going to follow these students across a year inside the boarding school. Um, and go home with them on holidays and and follow, you know, their lives. Um, And it was really only a few weeks into filming when the boarding school was shut down and all the students were sent home, Um, which was just sort of unbelievable (laughs) for us. Um, And it was was very tough because we couldn't get to them, you know. We couldn't get to WA. We couldn't get to that. Everybody was went home interstate, um, and we couldn't even get out of Victoria um, for a lot of the time to um, to visit our Victorian kids because of the ring of steel. Um, so we we started zooming the kids um, whilst they were remote learning and trying to stay in touch that way. Um, we wanted them to film a little bit of their home lives, but they weren't very interested in doing that. Um, and eventually we just one by one were able to visit kids in different states as the lockdowns opened up 
Um, we had a crew in WA who could do that for us. John was in Queensland, so he could film the Queensland stories. And then eventually I was able to get down to the Victorian students. Yeah, and, and how did that experience of 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 the pandemic impact on on these students' experiences? Because obviously going off to boarding school is a huge thing in itself. And I mean, I'd never seen inside the walls of Geelong Grammar before, but I mean, it's not exactly a normal environment um, to be walking into for, for many students around the country. And, and there's the added complications. I mean, they've all got their own, their own journey and their own stories to tell, um, uh, you know, that, that are very much sort of individual in, in this particular um, um, documentary. But, but how did they go once they'd sort of gone to boarding school and taken that big leap and then gone back home and, and had to deal with whatever sort of issues or challenges they might have been facing there? What was that like for them, uh, John? How did you kind of get a sense of their changing relationship to boarding school and whether it was a thing they really wanted to or felt they should be doing? Yeah, it was It was interesting. I mean, you know, like it was a challenging year for all of us. And I think, you know, for the students, it's, they, they all wanted, want to do boarding school, you know. It's something that they've wanted to do for a long time. And, you know, and and it's it, it's interesting seeing them have this experience. And then I guess for the families, you know, being very supportive of the students and going away to school and, and then actually having them back home, it just kind of made them realise what they were missing as well by having the you know, the children away at school and having that distance apart. And I think, you know, it, it's challenging because the students come from all over the country. So the, with the border closures and the uncertainty around that made it very difficult for the students. Um, you know, there, and there was one student, um, the Talia, who who during the, during the lockdown, she started attending a, um, a school in an interim kind of way in Darwin. And there were a lot of Indigenous students there. And I, I found that really interesting that, you know, she, she found herself being more of herself, like in terms of her indigeneity and the way she expressed herself, the way she talked, you know, just everything about her. And and she noticed that when she was in back at Geelong within a predominantly non-Indigenous environment that she was kind of you know, um, that identity was sort of, she felt faded a bit in her, in who she mm. was, um, which I think is an interesting experience, you know, for for young Indigenous people and, and one that many Indigenous people find themselves in, um, in this kind of walking in two worlds, I guess. I mean, it really did, that was really um yeah, it came through in in the in the documentary that, um, as you said at the outset, uh, and and just then, you know, students really wanted to be in that environment, and the families were committed to the boarding school um, um, set up for their for their um, kids because of the opportunities that they saw it could unlock for them into the future. But then a lot of the the families and and the students seem happier together at home, and I guess it goes to that 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 question that one of the the John Grammar teachers raises we're doing this thing there's all these positives but is it a positive and there is an open question there isn't it yeah and and it's you know it's definitely an open question and a question I guess that having the COVID lockdowns really brought up for everyone both the schools the students and the families so you know no, no doubt that that's kind of a continuing kind of thing for people um 
and and it's not you know it, it's not for everyone you know going away to boarding school isn't for everyone being so far away from family um you know i think the interesting thing for us too is what what it does in the film it, it heightens everything by having that separation from family it heightens everything that young people are going through and you kind of you know you really kind of get to see some of the really tough challenges that they have and you know some of those challenges too that yes it's about being away from family but also they're affected from past colonial policies on their people whether they whether their mobs been removed from country and forced into missions told they couldn't speak their language or practice their culture you know invariably practice their language like invariably young people are affected by that and we see that in the young people here when they're expressing their indigeneity and who they are and I think that's a really interesting thing as well because that's not just particular to kids going to boarding school that that that's something that many young indigenous people whatever school they're going to are actually experiencing and I think for us you know part of this film too was understanding the thing about indigenous education I guess is what we have our challenge is to understand these students before they get to the school gate because what we learn is that it's invariably the stuff that happens outside of the school gate that affects their learning within the school you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. We're speaking with directors and screenwriters John Harvey and Rianne Skirving all about their film Off Country, which is screening about as screening as part of MIF, and it follows the experience of, of a number of Indigenous students attending a boarding school at Geelong Grammar in uh, 2020. And, and that's another aspect of the film that I, I found quite interesting, given that Geelong Grammar has quite a, a long history of, of, of these kinds of Indigenous scholarships for students coming to the school. And, you know, at the same time, I think, as, as Talia says in the film, it's such a white culture at Geelong Grammar. It's such kind of an establishment British colonial kind of culture that they have and a number of students um, sort of, uh, you know, choose not to sing the national anthem and, and this kind of thing and are very, very aware and very cognizant of the fact that it's not necessarily, um, you know, a comfortable space to be in. I wonder if if um, sort of reflecting on your experience of making the film, whether it, it sort of tells us more broadly about the ways in which um, sort of Indigenous and, and First Nations perspectives and, and culture, I suppose, can be better incorporated into schools across the board so that students do feel safe and also just in terms of education that other students have the benefit of learning from that culture and from that lived experience. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's definitely lessons there, you know, for, for schools, for educators um, about that. And I, and I think a lot of schools are doing really, really well in that as well. Um, you know, and um, but, you know, clearly we still have a distance to go. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting because when they talk about National Anthem and, you know, if it's speaking about Australia Day and what that means, then that's also something that happens within our society as well, you know, that we're, we're grappling with as a society. Um, and that's a real challenge for us, you know, like some... You know, the, the young people and what, like, for example, what Australia Day means for them and, you know, we're in, you know while some part of the country are celebrating and, and it's a joyous occasion, you know, for, for Indigenous people, it's, it's a day of mourning, 
you know, and it's it's how, how does that day bring people together? And I think it's, it was pretty amazing to hear these incredible, young, articulate Indigenous people speak about that. And they all were, in in, in different ways, uh, able to share their story. And, uh, of course, it's your talents also as, as documentary filmmakers to be able to capture it and, and capture their, their voice and experiences. And some of them do go through mental health challenges in this film. And, I mean, what was it? like navigating which aspects to include of, of their, you know, various different individual life challenges that they go through and yeah, how did you how did you choose what what would come into this film? Yeah, well it's a huge responsibility obviously telling the stories of young people. Um, or telling anybody's story. Uh, for us we take that really seriously. Um, and with these kids in particular, we, we were very careful to create a structure around the film that allowed them agency and allowed them choice as to what they wanted to tell us. And that was all um, worked through with the families um, to make sure the whole family was, was aware and understanding of what was to be shared. And um, we also talked with psychologists um, along the way. We always had um, a touchstone there to keep checking that you know, that it was going to have a, a good effect for the children to have their stories recorded and, and um, you know, how that was going to affect them into the future. That's something that, you know, that our duty of care um, that we, yeah, is probably the most difficult and most important part of the process for us. Yeah. And have you managed to have a screening for, for all the students? Have they kind of sat in the one place and, and watched the film? And, and if so, what were their responses? Because it's, it's a pretty weird experience to have yourself, you know, up, up on a big screen for anybody. Um, but but did, they, did they receive it well? Did they take well to the way that they, they appeared in the film? They did. They did. They, they haven't watched it as a group. Um, that's scheduled for this Saturday um, at the MIF premiere. Um, but they have all watched it individually. So every family was given the opportunity to watch the film before it was completely locked off um, so that they could feed back to us on how they felt represented and whether they felt it was a truthful and, and solid representation and, um, you know, whether they were comfortable with it. And, um, and fortunately they all were and um, they all quite enjoyed seeing themselves really um, and seeing their views shared as well as their stories, you know, having those amazing articulate kids with their witty and, uh, um, you know, kind of sassy answers <laughs> to questions of national importance, um, they loved it. They loved being asked that stuff and, um, you know, they come across as so well-informed and, um, and smart that um, I think that was a really lovely thing for them as well. Well, also, I mean, I, I look the school, and I think the the ability to hear such candid views from the students at Geelong Grammar, um, yeah, really, really gave us a sense that the school is very committed to this program. And um, and I, you know, I love there was an interaction between um, two of the girls watching a, an address from the principal, and they kind of exchange looks. And it's an un, you know, we don't know what they're thinking as they exchange looks about the the principal address but I just sort of love those little moments of seeing them interact with the establishment of the school really um, but I mean what 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 are you thinking about the, the, the future of this kind of scholarship setup I mean we heard last week as part of the national agreement on on closing the gap that there will be fun
funding going to boarding school on country and your your film's called Off Country and it just made me join those dots a bit. Like is that the, the you know, part of the future of, of education in Australia that we, we have better education on country so students can have the best of both worlds, I guess? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess that's, that's yeah, that's one of the challenges, isn't it, really? It's it's providing uh, young people with, with those opportunities on country. And, and it's very multifaceted, you know, like this is one strategy around Indigenous education, you know, and, of course, there's other really big components of Indigenous education and, you know, right back to people's right to learn their own language, you know, and how, and how that's treated in schools and at very young ages within primary schools and stuff that are on country, you know, there's many challenges around um, Indigenous education. Yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we're in lockdown down here in Victoria once again, a, a familiar experience for us all. But um, but um, you mentioned that the, the premiere is coming up this Saturday. Do you have much of a sense of, of kind of where we're at with those screenings or what kind of contingencies might be in place? Because there's um, there's screenings, that, you know, all around um, around the state as well. I noticed there's some scheduled for, for Castlemaine and, and Geelong. Do you have much of a, a heads up of, of what might happen there? We know as much as uh, everyone else, I'm afraid. <laughs> We're waiting on the press conferences and uh, poor old Miff have already scrambled and re- rescheduled us once. Mm. Um, so we're just fingers crossed at the moment that Saturday uh, will go ahead and then there's various screenings around the state, but um, we're just having to wait. Yeah. And we're good at that and we will turn out and see the documentaries and all the other films at MIFF because that's what we do in Melbourne. Um, But, yeah, all the best for the screenings and congratulations on the film. Um, Very well told. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thanks both. Um, Directors John Harvey and Rianne Skirving and the the, uh, Melbourne International Film Festival doco we're speaking about is called Off Country. And, uh, yeah, keep keep across um, the MIF website, I guess, um, and information channels. Absolutely. Uh, But hopefully there will be many opportunities to come to watch this film because it is is a fantastic one. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.